little boy came home from school and he seemed very concerned. He had this serious look on his face and he said, Mom, we can't say thank you in the bathroom. Well, the mother was puzzled by this, not sure she heard that right, and said, what? And the little guy said, Mom, we can't say thank you in the bathroom. Well, the mother was just baffled by this. Where in the world did he come up with an idea like this? So she leaned over and asked, what do you mean? And the little guy said, well, it's what I learned at school today. They're in the bathroom. They had this sign. It was right above the toilet. It said, please do not use. Thank you. <laughs> the little guy was confused. He misread the sign. He, he misunderstood what it meant. How many of us misread our world? We too easily get overwhelmed by all the evil. We fail to see how God is at work, all the good that he's accomplishing because we're not looking at things with the right set of eyes. We don't understand what it really means to say thank you. For example, a lot of us think you have to feel it before you say it or else that expression of gratitude won't be real, it won't be genuine. But that's not true. Gratitude is a choice, not a feeling. Meaning, rather than waiting for the feelings to come and then you express your thanks, no, turn it around. Express the gratitude first and then let the feelings follow. Hey, you know, I, I really do appreciate that person and what they do for me. Or, you know, I, I really do feel blessed to have something like this. Or, you know, there really is a reason for joy in this situation. And it was that expression of gratitude that helped you to notice that. To help you begin to realize it, not just mentally, but to begin to realize it emotionally, too. See, gratitude is not a disposition that kind of comes and goes. Some days you got it, some days you don't, and it's never under your control. No. Gratitude is a discipline, something you have to learn and practice. It's just like what Rob talked about last week when he said, discipline precedes joy. You start with the discipline, and then the joy follows. Well, here's one of those disciplines. Here's one of those habits, one of those holy habits that if we'll practice it on a daily basis, it'll open our heart to all kinds of joy, learning. Learning to look at our world, not with despair, not with cynicism, but learning to look at our world with eyes of gratitude. You remember how the Apostle Paul taught this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? He said, give thanks in all circumstances. Now notice, he didn't say, give thanks for everything, good, bad, evil, no matter what happens, just be thankful for it. He didn't say that. No, Paul said, in every situation, no matter how much evil may surround you at that moment, look for the good. There, there's got to be some good in that situation. Train your eyes, discipline your focus, and look for God. Where's he at work right now? What's he doing in this particular set of circumstances? And then give thanks. Because when you train yourself to do that, even though the good may be something really, really small, but when you train yourself to look for the good, to look for what you can actually be grateful for, and you begin to give thanks, wow, it transforms your attitude and it energizes your heart. Let's take this a little bit deeper. Isn't it true that we tend to focus upon the exceptional, not the ordinary? You know, our daily life is filled with all these mundane chores, uh, getting dressed, brushing your teeth, uh, putting on the makeup, driving to work, sitting in class, fixing dinner, taking out the trash, doing the dishes. And because everybody has to do this, we don't spend a lot of time talking about those things. I mean, normally, you don't go to work and begin to brag to your friends, hey, guess what? I got to brush my teeth this morning. No, you don't say that because you know what kind of reaction you're going to get. So what? Who cares? Everybody has to do that. But what if that morning as you were brushing your teeth, you found a $100 bill? Now you got something to talk about. Or what if that morning you were really sleepy and, and instead of grabbing the tube of toothpaste, you grabbed a tube of sunscreen and brushed your teeth and as a result you had to go see the doctor? Well, now you got a story to tell. Something exceptional occurred. We pay attention to the exceptional, not the ordinary. 
Remember how this happened as a kid? One day your grandpa made an offer to you and your brother. Hey, boys, got some money for you. And sure enough, he opened up his hand and, and there were two dimes, one shining, the other dull. Well, because your brother was always the more aggressive one, he grabbed first, he picked the shiny one and left you with a coin that looked so dull. He picked the dime that looked exceptional. And that day you thought he made the better choice. He picked the better coin. And yet, years later, after you've grown up and you become a little more mature, one day you open up the sock drawer and, and you notice the coin. Hey, there's that dime that my grandpa gave to me so many years ago. And now you realize that even though the coin looks dull, yet because the dime that you possess is so much older than the dime that your brother picked, you have the dime that's actually worth more. The dime that, that looks so exceptional, uh, exceptional was not nearly as important as the one that looks so ordinary. See, gratitude helps us to see that. Don't dismiss the ordinary. Don't just look for God in the exceptional stuff. Recognize God works in the mundane, too. And that's a lesson that we learned from Nehemiah. Here's, here's one example of that. Five different times in this book, you're going to come across a list, a long list of names. Chapter 3, chapter 7, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12. And we're thinking to ourselves, five times? Come on, Nehemiah. Isn't one list enough? And what's especially exasperating about this is, is it, just as you're getting in the story and the drama's starting to build and the adventure's really getting good, all of a sudden, Nehemiah stops, takes a break in the action, and once again, we, enc we encounter another one. Oh, no, not again. I mean, all of a sudden, here's another chapter. It seems to be nothing more than a catalog of names, ancient names, people we're never going to meet, never going to know, really long names that are impossible for us to pronounce. So boring. So what do most of us tend to do? We tend to just skip over. Hey, what could I learn from this? Yet the Bible says, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is inspired of God. God breathed, and it is profitable for us in some way. And sure enough, as you take the time to study each one of those lists, you discover there's a purpose behind every one of those lists. For example, Nehemiah chapter 3, we have this long list of names, but it's a list of the names of the people working on the wall and the, showing us the part of the wall that they were repairing. So we begin to realize Nehemiah didn't do this by himself. He had lots and lots of help. But what's really amazing about this list is you learn about these people working on the wall. Most of them had never been trained in masonry. I mean, most of these people never held a brick or a block of stone in their entire life. You actually start to read through chapter 3. and You look at who's working up this law, uh, on this wall, and Nehemiah mentions the priest and the perfume makers, and you get down to verse 12, and he talks about the daughters of Shalom. Uh, these are people with no calluses on their hands. They've never been involved in a project of this nature before. What are they doing working on a wall? And then you stop to consider what they had to work with. I mean, it was 140 years ago that the Babylonians came along, destroyed Jerusalem, tore everything down, chopped up all the stones, burned the gates, just left this huge pile of debris. And then, after that, about 10 years, we learned this from Nehemiah chapter 1, about 10 years before Nehemiah got back to Jerusalem, Ezra and his fellow Jews, hey, we got everything going in the temple, let's try to rebuild the walls. And once again, the enemy attacked, squelched the whole project, tore everything, ripped everything apart, just left an even bigger pile of debris. So, by the time Nehemiah gets back and he and his friends start to rebuild the wall, what do they got to work with? Not these nice, evenly shaped, manufactured bricks straight from the factory. No, there's no symmetrical stones here. They've got to pick up and use whatever they can find in the rubble and the debris. So all these stones of irregular shapes and sizes. How do you build a wall out of something like that? And yet, you talk to archaeologists today who've actually examined that wall. And they marvel at the size and the thickness, how well it was put together. It's a remarkable achievement. So now we begin to understand why Nehemiah, as he's writing his biography, telling the story of his life, every once in a while he just stops and says, hey, wait a minute. 
Before I go on with the story, I got to show you something. I want you to meet the men and women who helped me to build this wall. I, I couldn't have done it without them. I want you to know who they were and where they came from and what they had to work with. I want you to understand why I feel so grateful for these folks. Why I feel so blessed to be a part of a community like this. I mean, just pause for a moment. I want you to appreciate what God's doing here. Hey, on the surface, it may seem kind of ordinary to you, but trust me, God was doing something special here. Well, then you come to chapter 11, the chapter we're going to study today. And again, you encounter another one of those lists, a long list of names. But this list is different than the one we had in chapter 3. Here, you see, the walls have already been rebuilt. So here we have a list of the names of the people who are going to rebuild a community that lives within those walls. Now, you talk about a challenge. I mean, you thought putting up that wall was difficult, and it was but that's nothing compared to the challenge of trying to build this community, trying to get all these people to come together, live together in the same place, really learn how to get along with each other, and focus on the same goal. Building a, building a community like that is like trying to build a wall out of bananas. Imagine, what if somebody came along to you and said, hey, I want you to build a wall for me, but instead of using bricks, you can use nothing but bananas. Could you do it? Could you pull it off? I know right now some of you think, boy, David, you're getting kind of corny here. And I understand, but I just want you to appreciate building a wall. That's one thing. But trying to get people to unify, come together and function together like a healthy community, that's difficult. Why? Because, isn't it true, people are a lot like bananas? We all have this kind of funny shape to our personalities and temperaments. Some are hard. Some are soft. Some are uh, kind of green. Others are overripe. Some of us are very tender and sensitive. We bruise too easily, while others are like the end of this banana. Got some sharp edges to them, jabs you every time you grab it. You know, working with people like this, never pleasant, never fun, because they're so pointed in their opinions and so pointed in their criticism. And every time you end up around, you end up getting hurt. And yet they're a part of the community, too, and you got to work with them. you got to find a way to get along. How do you build a wall out of bananas? Well, same question. How do you build a church? When you have to work with a group of people like us, and the answer is only God could pull that off. Only God could make that happen. That's exactly what we see in Nehemiah chapter 11. Here we have a small group of people. It's only 10% of the total Jewish population back here in the land of Israel. Just 10%, but here's a group of men and women who are willing to open their hearts to the Lord so that he, get this, so that he can now do something special through them. Watch. We're just going to take a quick look at the first couple of verses in Nehemiah chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. They're already there. They're already on the scene. That's good. But that's not enough people to get this city up and going again. So the rest of the people, all the Jews who now live in the land of Israel, all the surrounding towns and villages, now the rest of the people come together and they cast lots. That's an Old Testament way of seeking God's guidance. There were a number of different ways in Old Testament times when people tried to, what is God's will? God, we need your direction on this and make that guidance clear. Well, this is one of the methods they would use to determine. Didn't do it all the time, only occasionally. In fact, the last time it was ever done was the early part of the book of Acts when the apostles are trying to find a replacement for Judas. We lost Judas. There's only 11. We need 12. We need another man on the team. So they cast lots. But that's the last time that method was ever used. And that's key. Because that's Acts chapter 1. That's before you get to Acts chapter 2, before the outpouring of the Spirit, before the start of the church, before the new covenant was actually put into effect. And once you get into the New Testament, they don't cast lots anymore. Why? We've got something better, so much better. We've got a much brighter light to use. This book, want to know God's will? Just open up this book. See, we have something that Nehemiah and his friends didn't have. 
I mean, they had a part of God's Word, but just a part. But today we have this full and complete revelation. Here's the light that we need. Well, back in this day and time, to understand, okay, God, who do you want in the city? Who do you want to be a part of this new community? So we need your guidance here. So they cast lots to bring one out of every ten. All the people living in the land, we need one out of every ten to make this move. And this is going to require a lot of sacrifice. This isn't going to be easy. Leaving all that is familiar to you and moving to a new spot, being part of a new community, people you maybe you're not familiar with at all, this isn't going to be easy. So one out of every ten, they cast lots to find out who that's going to be, to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining 90% stay in the surrounding towns and villages. At first, if you just stop there, verse 1, it looks like they're being drafted. You know, arms twisted. Hey, you were picked. Got to go. You have to serve, whether you like it or not. All right, all right, I'll go. That's not what's happening. Notice verse 2. And the people, the other 90%, they commended the 10% who were chosen by Lot. Why? Because they volunteered. In other words, these people, they're looking at this situation with a new set of eyes. They realize, hey, this isn't just flipping a coin. This isn't just drawing straws, and I got stuck with a short straw. No. God is the one casting the lots. God's the one making the choice. He, he didn't want him. He didn't want her. He wanted me. Me? He wanted me for this assignment? Wow. I feel so privileged. I feel so blessed. I get to be a part of this new project? Hey, sign me up. I want to go. And because the hearts of these men and women, this 10%, this small group, 10%, because they had hearts like that, willingly, eagerly embracing God's will for their lives, this community is going to get off to a fantastic start. So verse 3, you see the cross-section of the, the crowd. I mean, these Israelites, when they all get together, yeah, they're all Israelites, but there's a wide diversity here. They're not all the same kind of people. There's all different kinds of people that God is choosing from. There's going to be all different kinds of people involved in this new community. And then you get down to verse 4, and Nehemiah begins to write down the names, the actual names of the individuals and the families that are going to be a part of this you know, help make Jerusalem a glorious place to live again. Now, here's what I find fascinating. If you take the time to read through the rest of the chapter, what you're going to notice is this. Everyone who's volunteering to be a part of this new community, they're volunteering to work behind the scenes. Verse 1's already made it clear. The leaders, the CEOs, the bosses, they're already there. Anybody else that comes along, they're going to be a part of the support staff. Anybody else's volunteers, they're going to be the secretaries and assistants and the custodians, the volunteers who stay behind when the program's over and the crowd walks out of the building. They stay behind to collect the communion cups and vacuum the carpet and throw away the dirty diapers and pick up the paper towels there in the men's room floor because somebody always ends up missing the trash can. These are those anonymous people willing to stay anonymous don't have to have their names in the headlines. They don't have to stand in the spotlight. They are willing to work behind the scenes. They're the ones who hear all the complaints. They're the ones who clean up the messes that everybody else makes. But without their labor and without their effort, this community could not function. In other words, here in Nehemiah chapter 11, we're seeing the same thing you see every time you come to the end of a movie. You know, the movie's over. Most people get up. They walk out of the movie theater. But you sit. You just sit and watch the credits as it begins to roll down the screen, and you're amazed at all the people it took to pull this off. I mean, to take this story and turn it into a major film, man, it required the commitment of all kinds of people. I mean, at first, you see in big letters the names of the actors and actresses, you know, the recognizable faces you just saw up in the screen, all the Hollywood stars, the celebrities. But then you begin to realize, in order for those stars to actually appear in this movie, there were all kinds of other people working behind the camera. There were costume designers, choreographers, uh, stuntmen. There were set directors. There were 
special effects people. There were people working in construction and lighting and, and the payroll. There were the travel coordinators and the publicists and, the, and, and all these different cameras. And just on and on it go, thousands of people working off screen. So this movie could be more than just an idea, more than just a dream. It became a reality. That's exactly what we have here in Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah has a dream. Let's rebuild the wall. And let's rebuild the city that lives behind that wall. But here's the list of all the people who made that dream come true. So five different times, Nehemiah says, before I finish the rest of the story, I, I, I gotta, you've got to meet these folks. And he, he just stops and begins to write down each name. I, I couldn't have made it without him. And well, I couldn't have finished the project without her. And where would I be if this family had not stepped up to the plate and helped me out? And as he goes through this discipline, as he makes this choice to write out each name, what's happening? He's opening his heart to all kinds of joy. Wow. Look how blessed I am to be a part of a team like this. This past summer, there was a new craze, a huge phenomenon going on. It was a brand new game called Pokemon Go. Familiar with that? Millions of people all over the United States we're playing this game. You download this. As I understand, I haven't done this, so help me if I get this wrong. Uh, you know me in technology. Anyway, you download this, download this app on your phone, and it's a video game, but it's a video game you play out in the real world. So you take your phone, you go out to a park or some other wide open space, and as you go out with your phone, now with this app, you see things other people don't see. You see all these characters, all these Pokemon characters. I mean, they're everywhere, and you're trying to catch them. What was fascinating to me watching all this is people get so engrossed in the game, so absorbed in watching their phones, they'd literally walk into buildings or trip over chairs and benches because they were watching their phones and not watching where they were going. In fact, one guy posted a photo how he's playing the game in the delivery room while his wife was having a baby. She was not very happy about that. They call this augmented reality. You enter into the real world, but now because of this app on your phone, as you're out there in the real world, you see and notice what other people don't. Now, as you step out in the real world, you see another reality. Isn't that exactly what the Bible is encouraging us to do when it teaches us to practice gratitude? Step into another kind of reality. Yeah, every day you step out in the same old world and you head off to the same old job. And at the end of the day, you come back to the same old house and the same old street. But now, now that you're a Christian, now that you are a Christ follower, you step into every one of those environments with a new set of eyes, eyes of gratitude, eyes that enable you to see and notice what most other people don't, eyes that look beyond the funny hairdo and the big nose and the strange tattoos, and, and you begin to notice the fascinating people who live behind those disguises. Like that austere-looking principal, the big guy who runs the school where your daughter goes, it looks so intimidating, and yet, you take the time to talk to him, and you discover he's just a big teddy bear. Tender-hearted fellow, he's got a wonderful sense of humor. He's really a funny guy once you get to know him. Or how about the receptionist who sits behind the desk, just another dumb blonde? No. You start to talk to her, you get acquainted with her, you discover she's a farmer's daughter, got two college degrees, working two jobs to help get her sons through school. Yeah, soft-spoken, but very smart, very bright. You see, now as a Christian, when you step out into the world, you're not looking at people like you used to. Now you're looking at others with the eyes of the Lord. And as you look at people with God's eyes, you see a whole new reality. Let's pray.